so today's webinar is about the Supreme Court's June 2022 decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Now, prior to that case, the court had issued two major Second Amendment decisions concerning the individual right to keep and bear arms, D.C. versus Heller and McDonald versus City of Chicago. Both decisions had established the Second Amendment right to bear arms within the home under certain circumstances. But until last June, the question of ownership and possession outside of one's home had never reached the Supreme Court, which had resulted in a patchwork of decisions in lower federal courts and in state courts. So today's panel will discuss the Bruin decision and its core holding and rationale, uh, its aftermath over the past six months or so, and where we're likely to go from here, particularly in Massachusetts. And joining us, we have an esteemed set of panelists whose introductions alone could take up much of the time that we have, so I won't quite do them justice. Uh, but in no particular order, we will be hearing from Dave Solit, who is the chief of the Middlesex DA's office cold case homicide unit. Jamie Eldridge, who is a member of the Massachusetts State Senate from the Middlesex and Worcester District and has been the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee for the past two sessions. Patrick Levin is a staff attorney from the CPCS Appeals Unit. And Peter Garrity is the Deputy General Counsel for the Department of Criminal Justice Information Services. And I'm Dave Rangaviz. I'm in the Attorney General's office and also the co-chair of the BBA Criminal Law Section. Now, I'm the moderator, so I will only be asking the questions, but please note that I speak only for myself and not for my office. Now, we will definitely be leaving time for audience questions at the end of the panel, so please do submit your questions using the Q&A function, and we will definitely try to answer as many as we possibly can before we wrap up today. But I wanted to start with Peter. Um, Peter Garrity, could you uh, describe the law that was at issue in Bruin uh, and the court's holding and rationale in its decision? Sure. And thank you, Dave. Um, I also want to make clear that I, I speak only for myself and not on behalf of the Commonwealth, um, but I'm glad to be here today. So the law at issue in Bruin was a New York law with origins dating back over 100 years. Uh, that law required an individual to establish a, quote, proper cause in order to obtain an unrestricted license to carry a firearm outside the home. That proper cause requirement had been interpreted by New York courts to mean that a person had to demonstrate a special need for self-protection that was distinguished from that of the general community. So, for example, it wasn't sufficient for an individual to claim that they lived in a dangerous neighborhood with a crime rate, um, as that would not distinguish them uh, from everyone else who lived in that neighborhood. So two individuals who had been denied unrestricted licenses to carry based on their generalized interest in self-defense um, sued the state of New York. Um, the case uh, went through the, the federal circuit um, and was initially dismissed, and then that dismissal was upheld. Uh, by the Second Circuit. So it arrived at the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court struck down the New York law and decided that it was unconstitutional to require a showing of good reason or proper purpose um, before allowing an applicant to exercise his Second Amendment right to bear a handgun outside the home. Um, and that that Second Amendment right was applied to New York through the 14th Amendment. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion. He referenced two of the cases that Dave mentioned, uh, Heller and McDonald, and he began by pointing out that those cases recognize the right of law-abiding citizens to possess a handgun in their home for self-defense. Um, the critical issue with Bruin is that um, 
he then expanded that right um, to hold that the Second Amendment right extends beyond the home um, and protects an individual who wishes to carry for self-defense outside the home. And the court held that that proper cause requirement in New York's law violated the Second Amendment because it prevented law-abiding citizens who have ordinary self-defense needs from exercising that Second Amendment right outside the home. Um, it's important to acknowledge, as we're talking about the groundbreaking nature of Bruin, that um, there are some limitations, um, specifically with, with what was at issue in Bruin. Um, Bruin was solely concerned with the right to bear arms outside the home and um, whether or not a licensing authority could place restrictions on that right. Um, neither eligibility nor suitability requirements um, that are common in some states, um, particularly in New England, were at issue. Um, and therefore, the court didn't rule on that particular issue. Uh, in fact, Justice Alito uh, pointed out in a concurrence that the holding decides nothing about who may lawfully possess a firearm or the requirements that must be met to buy a gun. Uh, and additionally, uh, the Bruin decision cited favorably um, two other states in New England, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, as well as Delaware, uh, as states which have discretionary criteria for licensing, but they operate like shall issue jurisdictions because they maintain a suitability requirement, but don't require a special demonstration of proper purpose. Um, so that's and I think some of my other colleagues will talk about that's important uh, for Massachusetts because we have suitability requirements in our licensing regime. Um, so the rationale behind the decision um, is still uh, a matter of some debate, um, but the, the high points are that the court noted that in, in following Heller and McDonald, uh, most federal courts were engaged in a two-part test when determining whether a regulation uh, was protected by the Second Amendment or whether regulated conduct was protected by the Second Amendment. So the, the first part of the test was making that initial determination. Does the Second Amendment protect uh, this conduct that the state is attempting to regulate? And then second, if it does, does the state have a uh, a reason for enacting the law that's outweighed, <coughs> excuse me, second is whether the state's reason for enacting the law outweighed the burden created by the restriction. So essentially an intermediate ends means scrutiny test. Um, and the court found that this two-part test was one step too many. Um, and, and it clearly rejected any consideration of means and scrutiny. Uh, the court explained that that Heller's methodology was solely focused on the text of the Constitution and historical analysis. Um, and because of that, uh, Bruin held that, that the two-part test went beyond Heller because it gave too much discretion to state officials. Um, so after Bruin, the constitutionality of gun laws and regulations will be based on whether the plain text of the Second Amendment protects the activities the laws are regulating. And if it does, then the government has to affirmatively prove 
that its firearm regulation is part of the historical tradition to set boundaries on gun use. Um, the court also noted uh, in, a, in an extensive historical analysis that not all, not all laws and historical analysis is equal. Um, the court placed particular weight on, on laws that were in place uh, at the time of enactment of the Second Amendment and to a lesser extent, the 14th. Um, and in doing so, it, it sort of waved away a lot of regulations that were cited by New York um, that predated the Second Amendment and dated back to the 1200s um, and throughout English history. Um, so going forward, um, the court set forth a pretty um, significant hurdle for states to reach. Um, and essentially, the state has to prove that um, there's some sort of historical analog to its regulation that's found in, in, in the history of this country. Great. Thank you, Peter. Perfect. Uh, setting the table for the rest of the discussion. Um, so I want to turn to Dave uh, Solit next. Uh, wondering, you know, Dave, if you could give us a little bit of background, you know, on Massachusetts gun laws and gun policy in particular, um, you know, as we talk about the impact that Bruin had here. And then, you know, we're about six months out from the decision itself. Could you talk a little bit about the aftermath that we've seen across the country since Bruin has come down about the sort of types of challenges that have been um, issued to gun laws and regulations since? Sure, I'm, I'm glad to. Thank you, Dave. Um, like Peter, I have to note that uh, the views that I express today uh, are my own. Uh, I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Middlesex District Attorney's Office or of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, so uh, firearms regulation uh, in this country is, is done in two different tiers, right? We have a federal system that uh, governs the whole country uh, is a baseline. But then historically, the states have also had the authority uh, to regulate firearms on their own over and above uh, the baseline set forth by, by federal statutes. And some states have embraced that and some states haven't. For some states, really the only um, limitations on gun ownership are those that are imposed by federal law. And other states have gone a different way. Other states have tried to regulate firearms uh, more aggressively and protect the public uh, from uh, people that shouldn't be in possession of weapons more aggressively than the federal government. And Massachusetts has clearly been on one end of that spectrum. Uh, Massachusetts has a, a, a robust licensing system. I think a lot of people in Massachusetts are shocked to hear that in most states in the country, uh, you can buy a rifle or a shotgun, including a military-style uh, semi-automatic rifle, uh, with no license at all. Uh, licensing is not required by the federal government, and it's not required by the state law of most of the states in the union. Uh, but it is required in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, you do need to have a license uh, to buy a pistol, a rifle, a shotgun. And, um, and in addition to having a system of disqualifications, certain hard rules, um, for instance, uh, a felony conviction is disqualifying or having been uh, committed against your will for uh, mental health purposes by a court is disqualifying. Um, there also is in the Massachusetts law, uh, as is in as is true in very few states, a suitability requirement for licensing, which allows uh, Massachusetts licensing authorities, which in our state is uh, really local police chiefs uh, and the colonel of the state police uh, are the licensing authorities. 
it allows them to identify people whose uh, past history does not necessarily uh, capture them in the disqualification categories, but where there's something that is still so alarming uh, that it is clear that they are not appropriate um, to be in lawful possession of a weapon. Um, right before this started up, we were just convening online and, and I said, you know, half jokingly, Osama bin Laden was never convicted of a felony uh, in the United States of America. But we had very good information that he had uh, views that were inconsistent with the safety of the public. He had attacked New York City. Uh, he had organized prior attacks on U.S. military personnel. Um, he was not a convicted felon. Um, that's the kind of person, or it's an exaggerated version of, as example of a kind of person for whom a suitability analysis would capture them as inappropriate, but a pure disqualification analysis would not. So uh, one of the things that Peter mentioned was that uh, after Bruin, the means ends analysis, which had always been a part of our of appellate review of firearms regulation, has now been uh, taken off the table. And uh, I don't sit on the Supreme Court, so I don't have a vote about whether that was the right move or not. But I do want to sort of show for our audience members a little bit about what the real stakes are um, when you take away means ends analysis. Means ends analysis is constantly in the minds of a responsible legislature, right? They have to think about how they balance uh, the rights of their people, the interest of their people in self-defense, uh, and the interest in, in their people of being kept alive and of being kept safe uh, from people that would do them harm. And uh, Massachusetts has done a really good job of that, uh, maybe not relative to the rest of the developed world, but certainly relative to the rest of the United States. Um, so I'm going to um, share my screen now for a moment and give you a, a little bit of a picture of what I'm talking about. So what you're looking at here is uh, a chart of gun deaths scaled for population. That's gun deaths per 100,000 people in the population by state for the year 2020, which is uh, the freshest data that we can get uh, from uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Center for Health Statistics. What you're seeing there is uh, a wide variation in gun deaths per 100,000 population, a huge variation with, at the far end, Mississippi with 28.6 gun deaths per 100,000 in population. And then all the way on the far right-hand side, uh, Hawaii at 3.4. Massachusetts checks in just to the left of Hawaii at 3.7. Uh, and if you look down the center of that chart, that green line is the average at 14.9. For anybody out there who has any experience looking at social science statistics, these are huge variations, huge variations in numbers. I mean, that is a, that's the kind of thing normally when you're doing analysis, you say, maybe we ran the numbers wrong. Can it really be that Massachusetts does such a better job of keeping its people uh, from being killed or from taking their own lives? with firearms than peer states. But we do, that's a fact. Uh, and it's not just because Massachusetts is uh, a relatively affluent state. Um, Massachusetts is a more affluent state and more affluent states tend to have marginally lower violent crime rates, but that's not the reason why we've achieved this level of success. If you look at this chart, this scales the violent crime rate per 100,000 population, uh, again, by state. Green down the middle is the national average, uh, 398.5. Massachusetts is better than that at 308.8, uh, 
but not leaps and bounds better. You know, we're not a standout nonviolent state. Uh, anybody uh, who works in the criminal justice system here in Massachusetts knows we are not free from violent crime uh, here in the Commonwealth. Um, so that's not the reason why our farms death rate is low. Uh, if you look here, this is a, this chart shows us uh, firearms homicides among similarly violent peer states. So uh, states that have similar levels of uh, serious violence like rape and robbery and aggravated assault our peer states are states like Ohio, North Dakota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Washington, and Nebraska. Look how much more dramatically uh, people lose their lives to firearms uh, in those states. It's really striking. Uh, and the same thing is true that that initial stat that I showed, that's a combination of uh, homicides and firearms-related suicides. Uh, Massachusetts uh, has not suppressed its firearm suicide rate because we've somehow eliminated uh, major depression, which obviously is correlated with suicide. Uh, we are not as depressed as the state of Minnesota, but we are not as upbeat as the state of Hawaii for reasons that one can only speculate at. But um, we are in the same range, a range of uh, 22 states that are colored in orange here uh, at about 5% rate of major depression. So the New England states all broadly together, but also with uh, other states where we have very different firearms policies, states like Alabama or Louisiana or Oklahoma. And when you look at how our firearm suicide rate scales to similarly depressed peer states, again, the numbers are really striking. Massachusetts all the way at the far right-hand end of the spectrum, 896 firearms suicides per 100,000, compared with states with a similar rate of major depression like Oklahoma or Idaho or Montana, and they're at nearly triple or more than triple uh, our rate of firearm suicide. So uh, means ends may not matter to Clarence Thomas or to the justices that wrote their majority, uh, their majority opinion, but it's a, it's a, it's got a powerful um, real-world consequence. And so there's a lot at stake for uh, what Bruin means going forward for the way that the Commonwealth uh, handles firearms regulation and the way that we're allowed to handle firearms regulation. Uh, a lot of people um, stand to suffer uh, if Massachusetts loses its ability to effectively regulate firearms. Um, in terms of what has happened uh, since Bruin, uh, like most legal commentators predicted, uh, and you know, Justice Alito uh, observed, you know, we're all, we're only addressing this one point here today, and I'm not sure that was entirely candid. I think Justice Alito well knew that he was inviting uh, an enormous uh, assault on the firearms regulation systems of uh, of all the states that choose to regulate firearms. And uh, and that's exactly what has happened. We have seen full frontal attacks, and I expect that we'll see more on virtually every aspect of modern firearm regulation. And Massachusetts, which is really one of the absolute leaders, along with Connecticut uh, and Maryland, uh, Massachusetts has tried to uh, aggressively regulate in all of the areas where it makes sense. Uh, we regulate magazine capacity. We regulate assault weapons. Uh, we regulate uh, silencers, sometimes referred to as suppressors. 
um, there are a whole uh, range. And of course, we have the suitability analysis, which I think is um, is a tremendous boon and, and which, to which I attribute a lot of Massachusetts success uh, in suppressing firearms related deaths. Um, what kinds of things are we seeing challenged? Um, well, uh, they include uh, regulations in um, in uh, in Texas, uh, a U.S. District Court judge uh, appointed by a former President Trump uh, ruled that uh, a statute that banned those under a protective order, sometimes referred to as a restraining order, from possessing firearms. Uh, violated the Second Amendment based on the analysis of Bruin. Uh, I think that most Americans would be shocked to hear that after a court makes a finding that somebody presents uh, a danger to a person and they are ordered to stay away from, say, their former spouse or their former girlfriend, that, that the decision to disarm that person, at least temporarily, during the pendency of the order, uh, violates the United States Constitution. That's been a holding from a federal judge since Bruin. Um, in a case that was a case called the United States versus Perez Gallon. Uh, in a in another case, that same judge in a case called United States versus Quiroz, Q U I R O Z, uh, the judge found that it was unconstitutional, following the reasoning of Bruin, to uh, to prosecute somebody for obtaining a firearm when that person has been indicted but hasn't yet been convicted yet. Uh, again, I think people would be shocked, regular Americans, and frankly, most lawyers would be shocked to imagine that somebody could be indicted for, say, armed assault to murder or uh, attempted aggravated rape. And that during the pendency of the case, which practitioners know, uh, complex, serious cases often take a year, 18 months, two years to get to trial. During the entire pendency of the case, if that person is not held in custody, they should be able to purchase an unlimited number and an, maybe an unlimited uh, nature of firearms and ammunition. Um, in the case, uh, in the in the um, case that in that that uh, the Quiroz case, we they actually had a guy who had been indicted for burglary and then been indicted for jumping bail uh, on the burglary charge. So you're looking at somebody there who has shown. Uh, a substantial uh, indifference towards the constraints that the law are trying to put on him. And apparently, uh, in this judge's view, at least, Bruin protects that person's right uh, to purchase a rifle and thousands of rounds of ammunition. Um, if you look at what's coming down the pike at us, uh, if you look at the analysis that says that only historical uh, analogs are valuable in identifying where there's a lawful regulation. Um, you're creating a, an instant mismatch because we have a world where technology has moved forward, uh, weapons technology and uh, capability has moved forward leaps and bounds since the time of the founding. But the regulations uh, apparently have to be frozen in amber. Um, we have regulations in this state, and there are regulations federally. Uh, requiring that firearms uh, not have a defaced serial number, right? When the ATF tries to track crime guns to their point of origin, one of the things we use is that uh, newly manufactured firearms, uh, whether they're imported or manufactured domestically, have to have a serial number on them. 
and defacing that serial number, which is not a thing that a law-abiding person has any interest in doing, is something that criminals do. They do it because they obtain their weapons illegally, and they don't want the people that funneled them their weapons uh, to be identified. Well, what does it mean to apply a historical analog to that? Uh, there was no serial number uh, on the muskets uh, carried by the colonial militia because they did not have the capability of mass producing muskets. They were hand tools. They were individually manufactured. We didn't have large scale manufactured firearms for decades after that. You know, Colt, uh, the Colt company that created standardized parts. Um, so of course, there's no historical analog for serial numbers. Does that mean that that's an unconstitutional regulation? I guarantee you that claim is going to be brought if it's not being brought already. Um, limits on magazine capacity, which Massachusetts has uh, has imposed and has successfully defended in the past uh, against constitutional challenges. What is the historical analog for um, for regulating the magazine capacity of a detachable magazine when weapons that were in use at the time did not even have detachable magazines? There was no 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 thought that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton ever had to regulate magazine capacity for public safety because their weapons were only capable of firing one shot at a time. Um, it was no more likely um, that they would ban uh, 30 round semi-automatic um, weapons than that they would ban laser beams. They simply weren't in the realm of uh, serious consideration at that time. Um, so there are um, there are real uh, there are real questions and concerns here. Even um, even uh, Justice Scalia, who previously had been seen as I think uh, one of the um, the darlings of the legal movement to uh, strike down firearms regulation, uh, when we look back at his opinion from District of Columbia versus Heller. Uh, some of the things that he seemed to be confident were, of course, reasonable and constitutional. Uh, people forget now that he said uh, that nothing in his Heller opinion was supposed to be casting doubt on the constitutionality of regulating, quote, weapons that are most useful in military service, M16 rifles and the like. I don't know how much confidence we should have that the majority that wrote the Bruin opinion still agrees with that. I'd like to think that Justice Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh still think that that is an accurate statement of constitutional law. But if they're working purely from a historical basis, purely from uh, regulations that were in place at the time, I expect that somebody is going to cite that uh, when the British troops were marching on Lexington and Concord, they were doing so not just to seize uh, muskets, but to seize cannon. That in fact, the colonial troops had successfully concealed cannon there, that the British never got them, and that those cannon were later used as part of the artillery for George Washington's arm. Um, if that's the case, and that's the historical analog, is it unconstitutional for, for us to, uh, to ban as a state uh, any, any other kind of military weapon that could be borne by a person? Shoulder-fired rockets, uh, surface-to-air missiles, um, this, is the, this is the current um, technology that is available for a modern infantryman in a modern conflict, like you would see in 
the Russia-Ukraine conflict. We're sending those those weapons right now. Um, I'm not sure. It seems absurd to me. But if we're stuck with a purely historical analog, I expect that we're going to see those kinds of cases being brought and those arguments being made. Thank you, Dave. That was great. Um, I want to I want to turn now to, to Senator Eldridge, if I could, and because um, you know, as lawyers, we so often read these judicial decisions that are you know dozens of, of pages in length, striking down a statute or another, but. We're so rare to have an opportunity to, to talk to a member of sort of the, the other institution involved, you know, the legislative actor. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us, you know, what your reaction was to the Bruin decision that seemed to put Massachusetts law, um, you know, somewhat at issue there. Um, and, uh, you know, if you could describe actually the, the specific legislative response that the legislature actually passed after Bruin came down. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much uh, to David and to Devin, and, and great to be here on this uh, panel with uh, Peter Garrity, Patrick Levin, and, and David Salat, and um, and just thanks to the BBA. And yeah, I um, first of all, I would just say this is extremely timely because uh, probably as as most uh, folks watching are aware of, you know, this week you had the swearing in of all legislators, and then yesterday of of our new governor. And so the, the new session has begun. Uh, bills have already begun to be drafted. Uh, they, they'll be uh, filed by January 20th. So I, I think, uh, first of all, be, because of uh, a reaction by, by legislators and public and advocates to the Bruin decision, um, and, I, and I, of course, want to talk about how the legislature responded last session uh, over the summer, but I, I think because of that decision, there there is already going to be, I think, um, my indications from the Speaker of the House and, and the Senate President is there will be action on gun safety legislation. Um, you know, perhaps beyond what what uh, the, the Bruin decision did in terms of repealing some of our, our state uh, gun control laws. So, so I, I I think it's so important to have this discussion now. Um, you know, the, the, the Bruin decision came down June 23rd. And, you know, I think a, a lot of us were, were already expecting uh, what that decision would do in terms of validating Massachusetts laws, uh, of course, very similar to, to New York's. Um, so because that decision came down over the summer and our, our formal session ended at the end of July, uh, we, had, we needed to act quickly. So the legislative vehicle that we did to, to address that was in the judiciary IT bond bill, um, some, somewhat related to you know, the courts, to judiciary, of course. So, uh, so because there was such a, you know, I would say for most legislators, a real uh, sense of, of, of outrage, and we started hearing from our police chiefs because you know, the Bruin decision taking away this discretion uh, from police chiefs, uh, about the need for the legislature to act. So in, in uh, chapter 175 of the Acts of 2022, which again was the Judiciary IT Bond Bill, uh, we did three major changes uh, really to not only sort of comply with the Bruin decision, but also to you know, hopefully continue the, the gun safety laws that have worked so well in Massachusetts and, and really appreciate the statistics that David uh, has highlighted today to, to really show that, yeah, again, Massachusetts has 
strongest gun laws in the country, um, among the lowest, you know, homicide rates uh, and death by by guns in, in the country. And we want to we want to keep it that way. And, and also we need to do better. So the the response was first of all uh, in in yeah chapter one seventy five. Uh, just stating that the licensing authority, uh, you know, again, uh, usually police chiefs must personally interview the applicants for the gun license. Um, and then related that because this, this discretion was, was seen as, as being, um, you, you know, creating a disadvantage for people who wanted to, to, to have a, a gun is uh, chapter 170, 175 now requires a person to be denied a license to carry where the person, quote, poses a risk of danger to their self or others by having gun. Um, so uh, instead of discretionary, uh, making it clear in, in, in statute, um, and, and this would, you know, of course, work in tandem with the, the personal interview requirement. And then the, the third part of the law uh, really spoke to a somewhat of a loophole in our, our gun safety laws and just uh, some confusion between the two uh, references in different statutes about restraining orders. And so it made it clear, uh, again, in 175, that people currently subject to a stocking order um, uh, and those who pose a risk of danger to their self or others, um, that, the, that that would be clear that those persons are prohibited um, from a, a concealed carry gun. So those are the three changes we made in the law. I, I will say that you know there were other proposals House and Senate in the Judiciary IT bond bill, uh, but those were not in the bill signed by by the governor to put these these things into place. So that was, you know, in my opinion, sort of meeting the the Bruin decision, um, really doing everything we could to best support our, our police chiefs to maintain uh, their ability to uh, to to decide, you know, who carry a gun and who can't in Massachusetts. So. I think because of that, you know, there were already commentary at the end of the session by Speaker Ron Mariano, by the Senate President about other aspects uh, of us taking action, you know, will, will then be debated in the new session. Um, I would say, and, and I'm not saying it just because it was in my district, but it was uh, certainly alarming. And, and I would say uh, anyone who hasn't read it yet, the, the Globe investigative story, investigative series, on the fact in, in the town of Little, Littleton, which full disclosure is in, is in my district, uh, that uh, there is a, a uh, 19th century uh, mill, uh, mill building, uh, no, you know, obviously no longer functioning as a mill, that uh, has right now, we believe about 80 licensed gun dealers. Uh, so it's the most concentrated uh, gun uh, building of gun dealers in the country. So not, not just, in Massachusetts, not just you know Eastern United States, but in the country. So, the Globe continues to do stories on this. There's been other you know media that have picked up. I know that the the uh, the Giffords Group, a national gun control group, has been focused a bit on this. So, so I think you know that has highlighted that uh, look, we we all need to do we all need to do better. Uh, we all need to make sure that we can you know reduce those homicides. You know, obviously, ideally to, to zero. Um, and so, so from from these, these stories and from sort of uncovering this, uh, I, I do believe there will be bills filed around that. Um, you know, that could be around, um, you know, some of the alleged loopholes around: can you buy 
parts uh, to a gun uh, from a gun dealer or several gun dealers, and then put those together uh, to, to, uh, to, to make a gun that's, that's currently banned in Massachusetts. Um, you know, what, what is the enforcement? What is the inspection of, of gun dealers? Uh, that was a more recent Globe story where a lot of police departments or chiefs basically said that, you know, either they weren't completely aware of all the, the gun laws. And, and I would just say just from the discussion today, you, know, you really get a sense of how nuanced and detailed and dealing with federal and state regulation is, you know, how do we help our police departments or police chiefs fully understand what those laws are? How do we provide them the resources? And, um, you know, should there be some other entity that's doing those inspections, especially if you have very small police departments that feel that they don't have the resources to do it? Um, so that's just one example. And so I, I do think similar to what happened in it was 2014 and the legislature is, I, I think you are going to see a, a push to pass uh, more comprehensive gun safety legislation this session. And uh, we'll see what that looks like. But I would expect a lot more bills to be filed by, by January 20th. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so before I move to Patrick, I want to just make a plug for people to jump into the Q&A if anybody has questions, um, because there will definitely be time uh, for audience questions before we wrap up. Um, but Patrick, um, Levin, I wanted to turn to you. Uh, as a defense attorney, and I used to work with Patrick, so I can say he's one of the great defense attorneys in the Commonwealth. Um, and, uh, you know, many people watching this uh, webinar and who will watch it in the future are on the defense side. And so I wonder, what is your advice um, to defense side practitioners out there about how Bruin might affect uh, defenses that can be raised on behalf of clients in, uh, in their gun-related uh, gun cases? Well, uh, thanks, Dave, and um, thanks, everyone. It's, it's a little tough to say uh, how this is going to shake out in terms of criminal defense work in particular. Um, I think the biggest open question, I think probably we all would agree that for Massachusetts laws in the wake of ruin is just how much discretion are the licensing authorities allowed to retain um, when they're deciding who to issue a license to. But that is not really a question that is going to come up in criminal cases very often because the SJC has held that if you didn't make an attempt to get a license, then you can't subsequently challenge the constitutionality of the licensing scheme as a whole in the context of a criminal prosecution. Um, so these questions about whether the, um, you know, as opposed to the proper cause, whether the, the, the licensing authorities have discretion to decide whether someone is a good person to be allowed to have a gun or not is going to be more raised, I think, in affirmative civil litigation as opposed to as, as defenses to criminal cases. But there are some areas where the Second Amendment issues will come up in criminal practice. I know there's one that's already pending in the SJC, which is the question about the constitutionality of the, um, the allotment of the burden of proof on whether someone had a license or not. 
in a in a prosecution for a possession of a firearm without a license. And I do think possession cases are the ones probably the the only significant class of cases where Second Amendment issues will arise in the criminal law. Um, I, you know, the the simple possession question is the only likely criminal prohibition that really touches on the Second Amendment right, even the way that Clarence Thomas has characterized it, because he's very careful throughout the Bruin opinion to refer to law-abiding citizens over and over again as the people who possess the Second Amendment right. And I think any crime that involves the use, the unlawful use of a firearm is probably untouched by this decision. Um, but I do think in possession cases, you know, this question of who has to prove whether or not the person has a license is an open question at the moment, although the SJC will presumably decide it in the next several months. The flat bans on possession of various non-firearm weapons in uh, Chapter 269, Section 10B of the General Laws, I think is going to continue to present questions in cases where people are charged. Um, you know, certain kinds of knives that are just illegal to possess in Massachusetts, certain kinds of um, martial arts weapons, throwing stars and things, you know, un sort of unusual types of weapons. And there will be a question of, are they unusual enough to not count as arms under Heller and Bruin so that the state can ban them? And if not, then I think Heller is clear that probably the, those, those flat bans are eventually going to be struck down if people are charged with those crimes. Um, and so that's just going to be a question of sorting out which ones are arms, which ones are dangerous and unusual weapons that don't count as arms. And that's, a, again, a historical analysis, I guess, that we're going to undertake, but it's not totally clear to me how you're supposed to perform that analysis. Um, some other areas that I think are less uh, immediately obvious are so that the dangerousness pretrial detention statute, um, chapter 276, section 58A, lists unlicensed possession of a firearm as a predicate offense for pretrial detention. And so there's a question, is that the kind of regulation that Bruin applies to? If so, I think, you know, it's it's going to be tough for the Commonwealth to show that there's a historical tradition, given that pretrial preventive detention based on dangerousness is a relatively modern invention in our criminal justice system. Um, but of course, there's a separate question of, is that what the Bruin case is even about to begin with? Or is it is it only about the, what we're substantively allowed to criminalize? Um, there's a, a sort of a similar question presented as to the mandatory sentencing scheme under Section 10A for unlicensed possession, where I, I don't, I'm not aware of a historical tradition of, of imposing mandatory jail sentences on you know, first offenders for simple possession of a weapon. Um, so if the Commonwealth does need to show that that kind of historical tradition existed, I, I think that's, again, it's going to be a, a tough a tough sell for them. Um, another potential area where you might be able to raise it as a defense in a criminal case is if 
some of the prohibited person classes might be arguably unconstitutional. In that type of a case, you may be able to argue that you don't need to apply for the license in order to have standing to make the claim because the law categorically prohibits you from getting the license. In particular, young adults uh, ages 18 to 20. I'm aware of at least one federal district court decision striking down a ban on possession by young adults out of the Northern District of Texas. Um, and so that is going to be a big question, I think, for you know nationwide. I, I don't expect, I mean, frankly, I don't expect any of these issues to get much traction in the Massachusetts state courts. Um, but what's going to happen in the federal circuits and then ultimately what's going to happen in the U.S. Supreme Court is a different question. Um, you know, David mentioned high capacity magazines. Um, and the, the serial number statute is another one that David mentioned. I am aware of at least one district court decision in West Virginia striking down a, a, a similar serial number requirement, um, although other district courts have upheld it. So, you know, we're getting splits already of authority in the federal district courts about how are we going to analyze these claims? What is, you know, how close of a historical precedent do you really need? What does it mean to find a sufficiently analogous historical regulation? Um, and I, I guess the, the one other statute that I will mention, although I've never actually seen it charged, um, is that Chapter 269, Section 12D criminalizes carrying a rifle on a public way. Um, I'm not, you know, I haven't done historical research to figure out if that is consistent with our na nation's historic traditions. But um, but this question of if you're allowed to carry, you know, it's it criminalizes carrying a loaded rifle and has a somewhat stiffer fine. And then it also bans even carrying an unloaded rifle on a public way if you don't have it in a case. And so that's another statute where I think a, potentially a facial constitutional challenge would be able to be raised in a criminal prosecution. Um, I, you know, apart from that, just in general, the idea that that busy trial judges in, I mean, even in the federal district courts, but especially in the state courts, are going to be spending their time conducting these in-depth historical inquiries is very strange. And it's not the way that criminal litigation usually works. And I don't know, I'm a little skeptical that in state court, that judges are going to change their practices very much. Um, uh, my suspicion is that, you know, these Bruin challenges will tend to get swept aside at the trial level, which could be a problem actually for the Commonwealth on appeal, because what the court says in Bruin is that the, that the court is entitled to make a decision uh, about the historical analysis on the record that's compiled by the parties. And so if the trial court doesn't force the Commonwealth to make the historical showing, then there's not going to be anything in the record for the Commonwealth to carry that burden. And so that there's going to be trouble on appeal. And the question of whether we can, whether we have to develop that historical record in the trial court, or whether you can start citing to the history for the first time on appeal 
is another one that I'm not sure what the answer is going to wind up being. Um, so more questions than answers altogether, I would say. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, but I expect most of the action will be in federal court and not in the Massachusetts state courts, and particularly not in state criminal prosecutions. Patrick, there is there's one follow-up question for you in the Q&A uh, about, a, about a specific statute. What do you think about discharging within 500 feet of a building? Well, it's, it's, I would not be surprised to learn that there are historical analogs to that statute. Um, I don't know. I haven't tried to figure it out. I certainly, it's, it's much less of a, um, you know, as long as you're allowed to carry the gun in the first place, that is you're exercising your right to bear arms. And so whether a, a regulation on how to use the gun is also an infringement on the right to keep and bear arms is a question that the Supreme Court hasn't addressed yet at all. And uh, I don't know what the answer to that is. And, you know, in terms of the of the historical analysis, I mean, certainly it would be, I think reading the cases, it would be surprising to me if a majority of the Supreme Court didn't say it's unconstitutional to prosecute someone for discharging a firearm in self-defense within 500 feet of a building. Um, but outside of that context, it's a little hard to see you know, without doing, without doing the deep dive into the history myself, it's hard to know how, what the answer to that is. Great. Thank you. Um, and Dave, I wonder, I mean, you've been a prosecutor for much of your career. You're a prosecutor now. Uh, and you know, many people watching, um, you know, our, our prosecutors, I wonder what your reaction is, um, to Patrick's advice to defense attorneys, and then what your advice might be to prosecutors who are watching. I think broadly, Patrick is correct about where the real action is going to be. I also, I expect there'll be plenty of litigation, but I don't expect uh, that, that I don't expect the Massachusetts courts to broadly embrace the aggressive readings of Bruin that I think that litigants are going to be motivated to embrace. But I do think if you look at some of the federal circuit courts and obviously at the U.S. Supreme Court, that's where a lot of this action will be. And of course, the Second Amendment is a U.S. constitutional amendment, which means we cannot, um, we cannot um, we cannot regulate what the Second Amendment bars us from regulating. Um, if the U.S. Supreme Court says that this is the law, that's the supreme law of the land, and it's this land too. And so um, that is where the action will be, and and that'll we're going to have to live and die, not really making a pun there, um, with with where the U.S. Supreme Court uh, takes us. Um, I agree with the with the uh, question that we got with Patrick's take. I think it would be a constitutional problem. Uh, pretty clearly in my view, if uh, the Commonwealth was prosecuting people for discharging within 500 feet of a building, uh, a person say that got mugged in an alleyway and lawfully defended himself. If we decided not to charge him with assault by means of a dangerous weapon because we acknowledge it's self-defense, but then we try to assess criminal penalties because he did it outside of a bar uh, where these guys tried to mug him, that would obviously be a problem, right? That it, the, the constitutional right of self-defense that they're talking about in Bruin clearly would be offended by prosecuting someone. You don't get to choose where your muggers attack you. And probably it's going to be within 500 feet of a building. Um, you know, most of 
most of our cities are, have a building somewhere in the next 500 feet. Um, but I don't think that's the way that that uh, has ever been uh, employed in the Commonwealth. And so I don't, I think that uh, uh, really that statute is used against people who lawfully possess a weapon, but like Patrick said, are using it unlawfully. Unlawful use mostly seems to be um, off the table, at least for now. Um, the things that I, um, the things that I think are sort of important for prosecutors to consider in this uncertain environment. Um, the first thing I would say to any prosecutor or anybody who's not a prosecutor, but who cares about public safety is, uh, talk to your legislators because there are things that we can do. Um, I have a lot of concerns about what it will look like to try to litigate uh, the constitutionality of these statutes by building a historical record. And uh, like Patrick, I am nervous about the Commonwealth of Massachusetts being bound to whatever record was created, potentially in a in a district court prosecution. Uh, and then that's going to be, um, you know, are we going to be bringing in um, tenured history professors um, to come and testify about what they learned in their doctoral research about I don't know. We've never done that before uh, in prosecuting um, district court cases. Um, that may be the right way to handle it here. I have to say, and this is, again, me speaking just personally and not on behalf of my office, um, I, I have real concerns about the good faith of uh, some of the mode of historical analysis that is used, because when they invited historical analysis in the Bruin case, um, there was a, a host of compelling historical evidence that was presented. And it was pretty much all just hand waved away by the majority. Um, you know, this was in the wrong place or this one lasted, but not for that long. Or this one was mostly in the 19th century, not in the 18th century. Uh, and it was really hard to read that majority opinion without feeling like uh, that was an outcome motivated analysis. Um, so I, I wish I could say that if only we were able to go into the you know, uh, the Harvard archives and pull out some old manuscript of what our ancestors in the Plymouth plantation were doing, that that would, that would save the day. It's not clear to me that that's the case. Uh, it's not clear to me that, you know, people who grew up uh, watching Westerns like I did, uh, remember that in many of these Westerns, uh, the marshal tells people they have to check their weapons when they uh, enter Dodge City. Well, that would be, I think, uh, an important historical analog that maybe when you're out uh, on the range and you have to protect yourself from cattle rustlers or rattlesnakes, that having a colt on your hip is necessary, but that when you're coming into town where there are families and people drinking in saloons, that having everybody armed to the teeth is not safe. That's clearly the determination that lots of um, people made in the Old West uh, where the homicide rate was staggering. Um, and somehow, even though I think that that's the, that is in a lot of ways the root of the American idealized gun culture, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court was kind of willing to hand wave that away. So I, I'm not sure that that we'll be able to um, carry the day just because we found uh, good, obscure, but honest historical analogs. Um, that said, I do think there are things that we can do uh, that will make our statutes more resistant to attack. They're absolutely going to come under attack. So there are things that we can do to gird ourselves for the coming onslaught. And one of those is if you I've talked up uh, how important I think 
uh, our suitability analysis is. But it is not truly necessary, in my view, to leave the suitability analysis uh, so broad and open to discretion. The truth is, the things that that I think are so important that suitability analysis capture can be articulated. They can be nailed down with more specificity. And I think if I was in a position of having to defend our statutory scheme against a Bruin attack, uh, I would rather have concrete, um, concrete um, areas that that are within our umbrella of unsuitability. I'm thinking of things like. Um, has expressed an intention to engage in future acts of unlawful violence. It is not a crime in general to say, I, I plan to do something terrible in the future, right? If there's a lack of imminence, it's not a criminal threat that's prosecutable. But if somebody says, if Barack Obama is reelected, me and my friends should go to Washington and kill him. That's a, I think that's an expression of a view about uh, your orientation towards violence that should allow you to have um, have your ability to possess a weapon lawfully uh, removed. If you say uh, that you are associated with an organization that is engaged in or dedicated to unlawful violence, such as a criminal street gang, a terrorist organization, or an organization committed to the violent overthrow of the government of the United States, those are that is an association that is not itself unlawful. It is First Amendment protected to um, to, to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan. But I think it would be reasonable, and I would, I would be glad to take my chances with the U.S. Supreme Court to say, when there is clear and convincing evidence that someone is a member uh, of a domestic terrorist organization, that can be a lawful basis for denying them a license. Um, I think that we would be in a stronger position to defend our suitability analysis provisions if we had these things nailed down and specified, and if we did it right, we could probably get 95, 98% of the cases that everyone agrees should be prohibited, and we could do it in more concrete language. The concrete language will be easier to defend than, uh, than, a, than a broad grant of discretion, because a broad grant of discretion is easy. It will be easy for someone to find a test case that looks like uh, silly or arbitrary or capricious enforcement. Um, but where we um, where we nail things down and we articulate them, and and I would suggest that we use the clear and convincing evidence standard, which is the standard we use for pretrial detention in 58A. Um, I think that would put us in the strongest position to defend uh, to defend the accomplishments that uh, that Senator Eldridge and his colleagues have given us. And I, like the, from the statistics that that I put up on the on the screen before. There are concrete payoffs for this. This is not just um, it is not just uh, virtue signaling or uh, you know trying to wave a certain kind of partisan flag. There are real people whose lives are being saved uh, by the way that Massachusetts uh, does this. Um, the the one other thing that I would say for prosecutors going forward, obviously to the extent that you have a range of choices that are available to you when you are uh, trying to figure out how to prosecute a given criminal act. There are some statutes that we have on the books that have not been struck down, but that are probably in more danger than others. Um, you should probably think about that going forward. If you have uh, an assault weapons violation that also involves uh, trying to scare somebody with the weapon, uh, I would absolutely recommend charging that person with assault by means of a dangerous weapon, uh, which is going to be constitutionally safe 
and not just with violating the assault weapons ban, which I think is is unconstitutionally tenuous ground at this point. Um, and I think that prosecutors uh, also should be thinking about Bruin and what it means uh, when they are handling uh, the disposition of cases, including non-firearms cases. You know, we've talked a lot during the criminal justice reform debates of the last several years about uh, the effects of collateral consequences of criminal convictions. And I think that's really important. Uh, one of the things that we focused on uh, in Massachusetts has been trying to make sure that people that uh, are convicted of crimes do have a path to rehabilitation and to reintegration into society to be able to get uh, to get work again, uh, to reintegrate themselves. But there are other collateral consequences that uh, that are important that we put there for a good reason. Uh, and that includes uh, disqualifying certain people who've engaged in certain kinds of conduct from possessing weapons. Uh, if we are heading towards a world where a conviction can disqualify someone from possessing a handgun, but a quaff cannot, a prosecutor is going to need to think about that. Uh, if somebody has a history of battering their wife uh, and they walk away with a bunch of quaffs, uh, I would say in the world that we live in right now, the statutory scheme we live in right now, uh, that person is very likely to be considered unsuitable and they're not going to get a license. But if we end up in a world where only a felony conviction gets you disqualified, then then giving that person a quaff is also giving them the ability to go in uh, and buy a semi-automatic rifle or a shotgun or unlimited quantities of ammunition or a pistol that they can carry in a shoulder holster. Uh, and so uh, I think that those are things we need to think about. And I think also we need to think about, um, you know, there are there are very serious crimes in Massachusetts uh, that are technically misdemeanors. Um, and thus, even a conviction after trial does not result in disqualification under the federal statute. I'm thinking about crimes like threats to murder or threats to rape. Those are misdemeanors under Massachusetts law. Um, burning a cross uh, on the lawn of a black family, believe it or not, is a misdemeanor in Massachusetts. As long as the wood that you're burning belongs to you, the racist. I would say almost everyone in Massachusetts thinks that someone that would burn a cross on the lawn of a black family, go to trial and get convicted, should be disqualified from possessing a firearm going forward. But if the question is, have they committed a felony? The answer is no. Incredibly, that's the answer right now. So there, there, there are consequences uh, that should flow from criminal convictions, and we may need to reorient some of our statutes to make sure that the result that we think we should be getting, we really are getting. Great, thank you. Well, this is my my last sort of open-ended question to the panel, and then we do have a one question in the Q and A. But again, may, I would make a plug for more people to jump into it. Um, so I just wonder if any of you have any sort of uh, final thoughts about about you know brewing itself you know, Massachusetts gun laws, you know, how it affects criminal practice uh, or, or anything that we've talked about before we open it up to audience questions. Any sort of concluding thoughts? Well, I just want to mention, uh, because David mentioned this question of whether are we going to have historians, tenured historians come in and, and testify, there's a really good order by uh, Judge Carlton Reeves in the in the federal district court down in Mississippi, asking the parties whether he should appoint like a court appointed expert historian. Um, it's a really nice 
it's a really nice order. Clearly, he doesn't think much of the Bruin opinion. Um, but it is, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And it, part of what makes it such an interesting question is, are we going to now have dueling historians testifying on both sides of a case? And then is a court-appointed historian, does that person have a different position in the litigation than the party's experts? And how is a judge, how, how actually is a judge supposed to make this determination? It seems like Clarence Thomas thinks you, the judge should be able, should just go back through the primary materials themselves and decide for themselves what the history shows. It's certainly that's what he did in the majority opinion in Bruin. But trial judges don't have time for that nonsense. And, uh, and but but it's also it seems very strange. It doesn't seem consistent with the analysis in Bruin to turn it into a pure factual determination that the judge just decides which historian to credit um, because the Bruin analysis is so in the weeds and, and the court, the Supreme Court does all the historical analysis itself from scratch. So I don't, I don't know how any of this is going to work. Um, it doesn't seem especially workable in general to me in, in the context, especially in the context of criminal litigation. Um, and, and maybe ultimately the courts will decide that it doesn't have a place in that context, but that certainly is not how it has been shaking out in the last six months in the federal district courts. I mean, every, every federal defendant who's charged with felon in possession has brought a motion to dismiss under Bruin. And so far as I know, none of them have succeeded in those motions, but every federal district judge is confronted with a landslide of Bruin motions right now in criminal cases. And they each, each one has to decide how to handle this historical question. And it's a very unusual situation. <laughs> I think that's a really good point, Patrick. And, and uh, you know, even if uh, even if we're still uh, in the world of uh, Scalia's opinion in Heller, where he says, of course, of course, of course, no one is uh, challenging the idea that uh, the felon in possession statute is unconstitutional. There's also the question of, well, what do we mean when we say felon? Because mm -hmm. our, our understanding in modern American society of who is a felon and who should be a felon, who should be considered a felon, has changed a lot. Um, you know, the, 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 the legal definition of felony in Massachusetts is, of course, just is, have you been convicted of a crime for which a state prison sentence is eligible? Well, there are a lot of things that are eligible for a state prison sentence now. First off, the vast majority of people convicted of such crimes don't go to state prison or anywhere close. But there are a lot of crimes that are that are felonies and which, in my opinion, just one man's opinion, I think should be felonies. I think operating under the influence third offense should not be a misdemeanor. And it's not a misdemeanor in Massachusetts. But there was no such analogous historical statute at the time of the founding because they had not yet invented the internal combustion engine and no one saw fit to prohibit I don't know, drunkenly riding on your horse, third offense. If they did, it certainly wasn't a felony. Um, felonies at common law in England were punishable by death. Right. Now right. we make it a felony to possess a forged registry of motor vehicles stocking. So if somebody who is convicted of uh, having a false uh, license that they use to, say, uh, commit a larceny is, is a convicted felon, do we have to justify that that 
is the kind of person who would have been disqualified at the time of the founding. Um, there are huge questions about uh, stalking and domestic violence and sexual violence, all kinds of things that we now consider appropriate to criminalize were not considered criminal then, um, including, you know, I mean, the Commonwealth of Virginia, I believe, uh, had specifically protected the ability of one spouse to assault another. And we know who was doing the assault. Well, now we have a different view, right? Now the Lautenberg Amendment says that um, people who are con convicted of domestic violence misdemeanors, not just felonies, uh, are permanently federally barred. Um, I expect that that's going to be litigated, right? I mean, a couple of district judges have, at least at a preliminary stage, expressed the view that that might be unconstitutional. So, I mean, I'll just say as an aside, this isn't so much about Bruin, but I think that um, the, and I'm, and I'm not expecting to change Clarence Thomas's mind about this, but when I look at the original language of the Constitution and they talk about a well-regulated militia, if you think of the militia as a military force, uh, and then you think about what we consider to be currently appropriate uh, military regulations for who is appropriate to be in and who is appropriate to discharge. Uh, in the military, in the United States military, we have a whole broad array of administrative discharge provisions. We do not just throw out of the Army or out of the Navy or the Marine Corps people who are convicted of felonies, people who are convicted uh, at courts martial of crimes like murder. Uh, there are also uh, thousands of people who are administratively discharged uh, for violating the rules and regulations of the armed forces. So if you think about uh, the appropriateness, if you think that the analogy is appropriate, um, it seems to me that well what it means to be a well-regulated military force, you might look to the United States military, the best military in the world. How do we regulate? Uh, that would lead you in a very different direction from where uh, Clarence Thomas and the Bruin Court have gone. Well, we do have a couple of questions in the in the Q and A. Um, so, one is an interesting question about um, license reciprocity, uh, which is which I think could really be taken by anyone. But uh, the person asks: um, Now that Section One Thirty One has been amended to be a shall issue law. How do the panelists think this affects reciprocity of licenses to carry from other states? Uh, typically, Massachusetts has not had reciprocity unless the licenses were from a state with requirements as stringent as the Commonwealth's, among other exceptions. With the change to shall issue, do we think that Massachusetts will now have to have larger reciprocity for other lawfully issued licenses to carry in other states? I'll take a stab at this. I I, I think that um, I don't think that Massachusetts is going to embrace reciprocity from other states. And I think even with the changes that we've made and the changes that we expect to make in the future, uh, I, I expect that Massachusetts will still have substantially more stringent licensing requirements than many other states. I can imagine. I know there have been bills filed in the Congress, and I could imagine a court at some point entertaining the idea that when you combine the Second Amendment with the constitutional right to move freely between the states. Um, if, if the right of self-defense is constitutionally protected and the right to defend yourself with a handgun from any unforeseen danger without any special showing is protected and it's also protected outside the house, it seems like it's only one step further to imagine 
when you roam the countryside, when you take your family on vacation, that you should be able to bring your weapon with you. And I expect we'll see challenges uh, making that claim as well. Um, I think that there, you know, that would be terrible for Massachusetts because, um, you know, we have higher standards here, and uh, I don't, I don't want to end up in a world where. Uh, unsuitable people are allowed to carry weapons in my Commonwealth as long as they live in New Hampshire at night. Um, that, that'd be a step backwards for us. Sure, and I'll just add that. That oh, go ahead. <clears throat> I was just going to add. I'm sorry, if, if, uh, forgive me for interrupting. I was just going to say this sort of reminds me of the legislature's other response, which was you know to the. To the um, in terms of the Supreme Court to the repeal of Roe v. Wade, um, where you know if something that is suddenly uh, illegal in in another state and 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 therefore states or uh, certain actors in those other states suing Massachusetts uh, for pr uh, protecting various reproductive rights, and and we certainly made it clear that you know we were not going to honor uh, you know. Uh, what was suddenly against the law in other states. So, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's safe to say, as, as David suggested, that I, I don't think we'll be seeing Massachusetts state government embracing, you know, reciprocity around this, but his, his point about, you know, you know, people then traveling um, who have, you know, a different right to, to have a gun in another state uh, coming into Massachusetts. Yeah, I, I can absolutely anticipate that being litigated. So we really need to be vigilant on all fronts. So. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, with Dave and, and Senator Eldridge. I, I think it's worth noting that Massachusetts has a, a regulatory scheme that allows uh, a non-resident to get a license to carry. Um, so given that that is in place right now, um, I think that that there's arguably a constitutionally uh, approved avenue for someone to get um, a license to carry and to be able to carry in Massachusetts. Um, and there are no restrictions on those non-resident licenses to carry. So I think that um, somewhat obviates the need for reciprocity. And then the, the last question we have in the Q&A is, uh, uh, do we know how many of gun crimes consist of licensed gun, gun owners in Massachusetts or otherwise? Uh, and I think basically just asking, do we have a sense of how many crimes committed with guns are committed by people with actual valid licenses to carry or, or are the lion's share of, of the crimes committed with firearms uh, committed by people who don't have licenses? I don't know if anyone um, has any familiarity with, with any statistics on that. I, I don't have statistics at hand, but I've, I've prosecuted gun cases for a long time in Massachusetts. I would say a clear majority uh, of, uh, Gun crimes are committed by unlicensed parties, um, and that is, you know, of course, a substantial number of the prosecutions that involve weapons uh, in the Commonwealth is for unlicensed possession, for violation of uh, Chapter Two Sixty Nine, Section Ten A, or of the Armed Career Criminal Act, which flows from Ten uh, A. So, possess possessory offenses um, are a big deal. They're they're um, they're serious crimes in Massachusetts, and they should be. Um, that said, licensed parties uh, are involved in uh, in some firearm violence. And uh, if you look at the mass shootings that have happened across the country, 
um, a substantial number of those are committed, have been committed uh, by people who obtained their weapons lawful. Um, Aaron Alexis, the Washington Navy Yard shooter, um, walked into a gun shop in Virginia, walked out with a 12-gauge shotgun, and then went to the Washington Navy Yard and started shooting people that he'd never met before um, after passing a federal background check. Um, many, many uh, mass murders that, that turn out to be mass murder suicides uh, are committed by people who obtain their weapons lawfully. They're not always technically by people who had licenses, but that's largely because a lot of these states don't even require licenses. They just let you walk into a sporting goods store and walk out with an AR-15. Well, seeing no more questions from the audience, uh, we can end a, a few minutes early. I really just want to thank all of you for being on the panel. This was really great. I think uh, a lot of people probably know there was a big Second Amendment decision that came down from the Supreme Court last year, and that's probably the extent of what a lot of people knew. So I, this has been a super educational, uh, and it's been great having you and, and your thoughts on it. So thank you so much for for joining us from the BBA. And um, I think Devin will will jump on to sign us off. And thank you all for, for attending and listening. Yes, I just want to hop on and say thank you so much for everybody um, who joined us this afternoon. And thank you so much to our panel for speaking today. Um, we wish everybody had a great weekend. Um, thank you. Thank you, everybody.